What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Wildlife Cake and Cocktails. We've got a fantastic episode for you today. Very excited to be talking with Dr. Georgia Ward-Fear regarding uh, cane toads, goannas, and the importance of traditional ecological knowledge. Um, now, um, in honor of our fantastic show and our, um, our subject, um, which uh, is going to be talking a little bit about conditioned taste aversion and uh, the effect of uh, cane toad poisons, I'm drinking something called sweet poison. And, uh, and uh, it's definitely not, uh, I'm not taste averse to it at all. It's, um, it's fantastic. It's got blue curacao um, in the bottom of a nice glass with a bunch of ice. Um, and uh, the mix itself is uh, about three parts pineapple juice, one part light rum and two parts uh, coconut rum. Um, and uh, it's delectable. I've also got a slice of uh, vanilla caramel cake in front of me, so we're pretty much ready to go. Our guest today is Dr. Georgia Ward-Fear. She's a conservation ecologist at the University of Sydney, um, starting with a Bachelor of Science um, and uh, actually the winner of the Ecological and uh, uh, the University Medal uh, for a Class 1 Honours in Ecological and Evolutionary Biology in 2008. She's since held numerous field and ecological positions, including with the Australian Wildlife Conservancy. In 2013, uh, she uh, moved on to postgrad research at the University of Sydney, where she's currently a research fellow after a PhD on evasion and conservation ecology focusing on uh, condition taste aversion in Varanus panoptes, the yellow spotted floodplain monitor, um, basically training against cane toad invasions in the Kimberley region. She's a member of the Cane Toad Coalition, a group of research organizations trialing conditioned uh, taste aversion therapy for protecting wild populations against cane toad poisoning. She's got a broad interest in conservation, evolution, ecology, invasive species, reptiles, and more. You can follow Georgia on Twitter at G underscore Ward Fear. And you can check out the Cane Toad Coalition at canetoadcoalition.com. Georgia, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks, Yanni. It's a pleasure to be here. No worries. And um, uh, I've got my uh, sweet poison here. Um, do, you have, uh, do you have something to sip uh, for yourself as well? Yes, I do. I've, t I've gone with something a little more tame. Uh, and I've chosen elderflower cordial, uh, which I actually made from my garden. So no, no, uh, no poison, no ethanol. No poison, no, no poison in this one. I guess some of us have uh, uh, things to do uh, for the rest of the day, huh? <laughs> yes, yeah. All right, no worries. Well, look, uh, let's get on to uh, our main topic for the day, uh, for today. Um, I guess uh, cane toads, um, which, you know, uh, we should probably talk a bit about uh, their introduction to Australia first. Um, in 1935, um, um, they are a large toad um, and uh, they are originally native to South America and mainland Central America and introduced from Hawaii in 1935 where they were already part of a biological control program to control the, um, here in Australia at least, to control the native grey-backed cane beetle and French's beetle um, and they did pretty much everything but and uh, spread out in very large numbers, and they are toxic to pretty much any native species with little evolutionary history of bufotoxin in their diet, um, giving them that low resistance and that high toxicity. Um, and we do see um, a lot of, uh, I guess, a lot of initial population declines, and then some species kind of reach equilibrium. A lot of the keystone predators seem to be more at risk. Is that is that um, about right? Yes, yeah, that, that's right. Uh, yeah, so as you said, cane toads were introduced in the 30s into Australia. They were introduced in a kind of an era of biological controls when that was in fashion. Uh, and there had been some um, success in Hawaii. And so there were some young scientists at the time that 
kind of wanted to make a name for themselves and uh, they wanted to try and bring this toad, this fabled toad to Australia. There was actually a lot of scientific resistance at the time uh, for that the cane toads were introduced. There was some resistance, but these, these people pushed on and, and brought it to Australia. And then, as you said, it, it, um, it started to spread. It didn't do the job it came here to do, which was to control the, the agricultural pests, but instead it started to uh, spread out and, and um, fatally poison a lot of the predators that it came into contact with. That's interesting. I didn't uh, know there was that many dissenting voices. Yes, there was. There was. It was quite a politically hot issue at the time. Um, so I've heard that at the time uh, Queensland had recently separated from New South Wales and uh, had become a state, and um, there was some there was some tensions around that, and there was a lot of uh, issues in the agricultural industry. And New South Wales said, "Well, we'll fund we'll fund you to." Uh, to to try and deal with some of these issues, if you kind of come back into New South Wales, and Queensland said no, we we don't want to do that. We'll prefer to stay as a state and deal with our issues ourselves. <laughs> um, and yeah, went on and continued continue with this. And then you know, then basically the state of origin happened. Wow, not to draw too many parallels to what um, just recently uh, happened in our political climate, but um, anyway, moving on. <laughs> um, how did you how did you personally get interested in in uh, cane toads and I guess their their impact on reptiles specifically? Have you always been um, into, uh, I, I guess, hepatofauna, and um, was it something about their impact, or was it uh, just? Uh, I, I know that the, it's become just such a great research opportunity for so many people to work on this invasive species problem that it's um, it is kind of a great area to work. Yeah, I wasn't interested in cane toads per se, but I love reptiles, and I first started loving reptiles when I was a kid. My mum took me to the um, Centrepoint Tower when I was about seven and there was someone up there um, doing a live reptile demonstration with a corn snake, which is not a native snake, but very beautiful snake and harmless. And I held, I got to hold this snake and I just, something changed inside me. It was just such a beautiful, sleek, calm, uh, placid animal um, and I was mesmerised by this snake. But I started to think about, you know, as, as I was having that experience, I realised that this was a wild animal and that this wasn't, you know, this was a very artificial environment. And so I started to get into snakes and reptiles and read about their, you know, learn about their ecology and learn about their their habits. Uh, and then when I was probably about 10 or 11, I found a roadkill uh, red-bellied black snake. And my mum and dad, who have always been very supporting of my interests and my passions, uh, allowed me to bring that black snake back home and do a necropsy on it, just to open it up and to see what it would, what was inside and what what it looked like, and um, and so that was another really formative experience of actually having having that interaction with that animal and and that um, you know understanding about I could got to see what it was eating and what it looked like inside and the way that snakes have their lungs you know one after the other in their body, how everything inside their body is designed for that long sleek length. Wow, that's uh, incredibly supportive of them. I can't imagine. I can't yeah. quite imagine my yeah. parents um, being uh, quiet, so positive. I, I, you know, I, when I first started bringing reptiles, you know, home or you know, telling my parents that, hey, I found this at the other, you know, I didn't, I didn't get whooped or anything, but you know, they they weren't quite uh, that uh, positive about it. <laughs> Let's just say that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I definitely made sure that it was dead first, and I wasn't allowed to do anything with the head um, of the snake. Right. But, yeah, so that basically just fueled my love and, and kind of fascination with reptiles. And then when I was in high school, I 
uh, came across a book about Australian snakes um, by a man called Rick Shine. And that book, again, was very um, interesting and inspiring, a lot of the stories about Rick's work. Uh, and Rick, is, Rick Shine is actually um, you know, an amazing scientist. Uh, and Absolutely. He, a couple of years ago, he, he won the Australian Prime Minister's Prize for Science. Uh, he's had a, a long and illustrious career. He's just about to publish his 1,000th scientific paper. And he, of course, is a herpetologist. And he's basically the father of Australian herpetology, in, in my mind. And so I just thought, like, I need to work. You know, I, Well, I had a dream that maybe one day I would get to meet this guy. Uh, and then I went to university and studied ecology, which was just a natural progression for me. And Rick was at the university and I um, approached him and asked him if, if I could do uh, graduate studies with him, if I could do my honours with him, which was a real honour. Um, but he accepted me and then we've just been working together ever since. And the, how I came to Cane Toads is that I went up to Northern Australia in university and just fell in love with that place. The environment is just so dynamic and it's raw and it's beautiful and wild. Um, I went up there in the wet season for the first time and fell in love with it. With it, you know, there's so many animals everywhere you go. And but the cane toads are invading northern Australia at a very rapid rate, and they're moving um, through the last biodiversity hotspots of northern Australia. And so that was a really pressing issue at the time. And of course, Rick was starting up his group. Um, that was just specifically focused on cane toad work, and so I just kind of fell into that. I needed to, I needed to get in with that group and start working on that on that issue. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if you've got somebody as knowledgeable as Rick Shine, which uh, first of all, it's just so great that you got to work with, um, I guess, uh, somebody who you were already so inspired by, and getting to meet him and then work uh, in his lab. That's just. Uh, that sounds like it was a, a fantastic experience first and foremost. But um, uh, as you mentioned, you know, Rick, fantastic scientist, very well known. And he's probably the foremost uh, herpetologist uh, on on invasive cane toads here in Australia with uh, all of the work that he's done and the book, uh, The Cane Toad Wars, that he recently published as well. Yes, yep. Obviously a very, very knowledgeable person in that field. So, um, yeah, what, what a great way to kind of, I guess, get involved. Yeah, definitely. It's also, you know, I also feel a very strong draw to conservation. Uh, because I don't, you know, to understand the ecology of the environment, the depth, the interconnectedness, and then to have a threat move into that space, you, I don't know, I, I couldn't, you can't do anything but want to want to work on that, I think, or want to, yeah, want to help that however you can. Yeah, right. So you, you've um, obviously spent a lot of time in the Kakadu and the, the Kimberley area. Um, uh, did you spend a lot of time there before you got into this research or has it mostly been since you got involved with the Rickshine Lab and the Kanto project that you've been heading up north? Yes, basically uh, uh, since I got involved with the lab. Since I finished in my third year of university, I went up for an, uh, an intensive um, subject that took us up to, it was called tropical field ecology actually, um, up to northern Australia to the Mary River, um, just, you know, near, which is near Kakadu, near Litchfield. And yeah, that's when I just fell in love with the environment. And I just thought I'm coming back. I need to come back. I need to be up here. Yeah. Fa fascinating. Um, and, uh, look, very, very cool that you get to work in, in such a amazing area. Um, doing such uh, you know, with so many reptiles up there as well, uh, getting to work with them must be yeah. um, you know, an absolute pleasure. Um, look, we should move on, I suppose, onto, um, Conditioned taste aversion um, and uh, uh, cane toad poisoning. Um, for our audience uh, uh, who are just uh, a little bit new to cane toads, um, so uh, I guess one of the main issues is uh, bufotoxin um, from our cane toads. Uh, the way that it 
kills uh, a lot of our larger predators is is seems to be fairly painful first of all (laughs) they kind of uh avoid a lot of their their bowels their kidneys seem to go nuts so they seem to be kind of trying to renal flush a lot of this toxin out um and on top of that it is taking you know it is having some uh fairly significant impacts on those keystone predators um what is condition taste aversion um we did discuss this briefly um with quolls but um uh do do you want to just take us through it again yeah so just a little bit about cane toe toxin uh cane toe toxin is or bufotoxins as we call them, which is the genus of true toads, and so all toads in the bufo genus have this toxin, uh, is a cardiotoxin. So it's a very small molecule that can actually travel through the cell wall quite easily, and it sends an animal into cardiac arrest. So animals really only have to mouth a toad for 10 seconds, and, they, and they'll die. And they, as you say, they spasm and... Um, yeah, and get rid of what's ever in their bowels and um, it's quite a horrible, painful death, although it is quite quick. So, yeah, and, and it, so as I said that, um, you know, it's a quick death and cane toads have, uh, the, the animals that cane toads impact the most on are the apex predators in the system. Um, so these are the large predators that eat frogs. And But the, the issue is that declines in those species actually amplify it down through the uh, through the food chain, through the food web, because those species regulate um, regulate the whole the, the entire food chain. So when you get declines in those species, um, that that kind of amplifies through the system. Yeah, absolutely. You, you'll, you won't have all that predation pressure keeping some of the other things in check, I guess. Yes, keeping the middle level predators, which, you know, then they're released from predation. So then they root up in big numbers and then they start impacting on the smaller species. So we know that cane toads are having a massive ecological impact, um, mostly indirect impact through removing the top order predators. There's been a lot of money and energy and time spent on trying to control cane toads, trying to limit their numbers, trying to limit their invasion, um, hold their invasion in place, but nothing's worked. There was even a, a CSIRO for a while was engineering a virus to, that they were hoping would um, infect females and, and ensure that females could only produce male offspring but they couldn't make it specific enough so it was too dangerous you know there's native toads all through asia and we're very close to asia so that was too there's too much of a risk yeah and you don't want that virus to jump yeah yeah yeah, okay. yeah. like a 28 days kind of scenario <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah so there's been a lot of money and, and time spent on that and it hasn't worked so in recent years researchers have started to look at the problem differently and we started to think about ways that we can mitigate the impact of cane toads on the species themselves as opposed to trying to target the cane toads. And that's a real shift uh, in the paradigm of invasive species management, which tends to focus on the species of issue. Yeah, yeah. Condition taste aversion is, um, is a behavioural mechanism that all animals possess. And condition taste aversion is something that protects animals from repeated ingestion of toxic food. It actually evolved a very, very long time a time ago. So we see it in, in many groups of animals, um, uh, more primitive animals and, and as well as more higher order animals. And what it is, is essentially if you eat something that is toxic and you experience the negative system, symptoms of that, you remember that experience and then you won't eat it again as long as that substance doesn't kill you. Right. You got to have a non-lethal dose of that toxin pretty much. And then uh, I guess it leads to a negative response in future encounters. Yes. So it's just it's food poisoning. It's like, you know, it's it's just the same as when you were a teenager and you drunk your parents' scotch and then you've never been able to drink it ever again. 
Um, well, Bundaberg rum, yeah, Bundaberg rum, actually, uh, that's the one that I struggle with. Well, Jim Beam for me, so yeah. <laughs> I, I, I can, I'll still have a little bit of Bundaberg rum now and again, but um, I may have, uh, you know, a, a, a younger me may have uh, turned myself off that one product a little yeah, bit. Yeah, exactly. So it's the same as that. It's a very simple mechanism. And we we were wondering whether uh, the Australian animals that were getting impacted by cane toads would have the same um you know, could we, whether we could elicit this response in them if we get, if we expose them to small doses of toad toxin uh, before the cane toads came. So the, the issue is with our fauna is that at the front of the invasion is just made up of these really large toxic toads. And so every toad that they have an interaction with will kill them. So there's no opportunity for the animals to learn at the front of the invasion. The invasion comes through, you get these really steep declines in the populations, almost to unviable levels in many areas. And so there's no population for animals to build back up from. Right, right. And and I understand initially um there was the idea of dropping um, I guess, toad sausage baits that was that was trialed out, but um there seems to be some more effective ways to to train or, or, or I guess condition a taste aversion into uh at least quolls and some of these larger animals. Yeah. The method that we use to elicit condition taste aversion in animals depends on their hunting strategy. Some animals are, you know, ambush predators. Some animals are carrion, you know, are scavengers, carrion eaters. Um, we do use sausages for quolls and also for some reptiles. But this main species that I work with, which is large varanids or go- goannas, uh, they're active hunters, and so they need more than a piece of lifeless meat. So we actually release small cane toads ahead of the cane toad invasion front, um, immediately uh, ahead of the of the front in areas where the invasion's about to hit in a few months. And um, and yeah, the, the, the animals have interactions with these toads in the wild and they are given the opportunity to learn that they wouldn't otherwise be given if they just met the toad invasion first. Right, right. And, and uh, you know, something like this obviously at first can seem counterintuitive. You're releasing cane toads to try to help with the problem of cane toads, but um, releasing them at that small size allows them to be useful for this training program, right? Yeah, it is counterintuitive. And in the past, it has received, uh, you know, it's considered controversial and has received criticism. But that just reflects the shift that the researchers have taken to the cane toad issue. We now know that there's absolutely no way that we're going to get rid of cane toads. And when they arrive in an area, it's like a tsunami. Um, the, the environment is flooded with cane toads. So releasing small small toads um, immediately ahead of the invasion, you know, in a few months, the, the big invasion will have arrived and it would have swept through anyway and be continu- you know, con- would have continued on. Um, and so all the way, and, and also there's enough cane toads in the environment to... Um, you know, to completely outswamp these tiny toads that we're releasing. So the impact of releasing small toads is um, negligible compared to to what's about to arrive in the area. Yeah, right. So better to have that training now and at least buffer um, the the impacts when, when that uh, invasion front does come through and does eventually start breeding. Yeah. All right, no worries. Well, look, I, I guess um, with uh, with uh, that little bit of uh, background there, um, I, I do want to talk about two um, uh, two of the papers that uh, you and the team have recently put out. Um, and we're going to go back first of all to the uh, condition taste aversion in goannas. Um, I believe in Varanus panoptes, the uh, yellow spotted or uh, uh, what's the other name? Uh, floodplain monitor. Floodplain. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, so um, for our listeners uh, playing along at home, that's uh, Ward Fear at all 2016 ecological 
immunization in situ training of free-ranging predatory lizards reduces their vulnerability to invasive toxic prey in the journal Bio Biology Letters. Now, um, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, uh, I uh, my understanding is this was uh, pretty much mostly in the Kimberley region on the Umbulguri floodplains. Uh, did I get that right? <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah. You're right. It was uh, in the Kimberley, which is where the cane toad frontline is now. It's about halfway across the Kimberley, moving westwards. A few, in a few years' time, the cane toads will be in Broome. The Umbulgari floodplain is a big 16,000 hectare floodplain uh, in the eastern half of the Kimberley. It's on um, Ballangara country. Yeah. Okay. And uh, as I understand, it was uh, uh, you guys basically searched across the floodplains on ATV quad bikes um, with uh, in pairs of two, one scientist and one Ballangara indigenous ranger. Um, now, keep that in mind for uh, for later uh, listeners. That's going to come back uh, to be very, very important. Um, uh, this was between 2014 and 2017, uh, and there was uh, over 80 caught um, uh, with radio transmitters placed on them. That's uh, over 80 Varanus panoptes, uh, yellow spotted monitors. Um, um, three months prior to the front, they were exposed to free-ranging goannas. Uh, oh, the, uh, the team exposed free-ranging goannas to live juvenile toads of about 25 grams multiple times while foraging and then recorded the reactions during and subsequently. Um, if they bit or, the sw or they swallowed the, uh, the, the, the juvenile toad, they were considered trained versus controls um, and then compared the survival rates with regular radio tracking checkups once the front came through. So um, am I to understand you were basically on an ATV with a box of small baby toads that you were trying to feed to lizards out in the wild? Yes. That's my job. That's my job. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's fantastic. So, um, I, I, I guess just, uh, I guess first of all, just predation note. If, um, if you do throw something small and moving in front of a goanna like that, how often do they see it, and how often do they see it, uh, and and go for it? They are very responsive to movement. Uh, a lot of their attacks are triggered by movement, um, as well as having really strong sense of smell or chemoreception. The way that we train the animals is, first of all, we would go around um, in the mornings and spot goannas and catch them. We'd then bring them back and we'd attach radio transmitters to their tails so that we could track them again, and we'd re-release them. After a few days, we'd go back out in the field. Uh, you know, Using the telemetry, we'd find the animal at the peak hunting periods, which was from 5 a.m. to 11 a.m. in the morning. And how we presented the toad to them was we actually had made these tiny little cotton belts for the toads, uh, and we would thread the belts through fishing line, and then we had an extendable fishing pole, and we would actually sneak up on the goannas. <laughs> I know, weird but true. And uh, we'd sneak up on the goannas, and we'd extend this fishing pole, and we'd kind of hide behind the the, um, the tree, and then so that we could watch the watch the interaction between the goannas and the cane toads. So almost similar to how you might noose a large goanna back in the day. Um, you're kind of doing this, but fishing with a little cane toad on some cotton string. Is that right? Yeah, so we'd le we'd leave the toad there to do its thing, to act normal, like a normal toad. Uh, and many of the goannas would, most goannas would run straight up to the animal, to the to the little toad, and investigate it. Um, and for the first trial, uh, many animals would um, would, you know, take the take the take the um, toad first time that they were presented. Very, very interesting. Well, look, let's move on to the results of that. So prior to becoming trained, uh, goannas uh, ate toads presented to them in uh, about 50%, 2% of field trials. Post-training, toads were eaten in only 1.4% of subsequent field trials. And uh, goannas apparently appeared to rapidly learn a generalized uh, condition taste aver uh, aversion, not, uh, not just for 
the specific small stimulus of a small cane toad, but also they avoided adults of uh, over 300 grams in the wild after after training. Um, in the study, the uh, in the study site with the longest toad exposure, um, only one of 31 untrained goannas survived more than 110 days. The last one was finally killed on day 183. Whereas nine out of 16 trained goannas survived uh, more than 110 days and 50% of the trained animals were still alive at the end of the study with the uh, maximum known survival in toad presence uh, coming in at 482 days. Uh, wow. Yeah, it was a very exciting result. Um, we This was the first trial of conditioned patient conditioned taste aversion in the wild with wild animals. A lot of the, the, the research had been done before, um, although there wasn't that much, had done it in the lab. Right, so you captive train them and then release and see how you go? Yeah, people had trained animals in the lab and then had taken them out and released them and looked at what happened when the cane toad invasion arrived. Um, so this was the first one done completely in the wild, the first study. And and we also just didn't know um, you know, how, the, how these animals, whether they had the capability to learn from such just a one, one-off experience with a small toad. We did actually repeatedly try and trial the animals so that we could see that they had developed an aversion firstly to the small toad. And then um, after that, you know, we, we, could, we could say all these animals had an aversion. And then when the main toad front came through, uh, they also avoided, avoided the toads. And we were just really surprised at the strength of the, first of all, the strength of the association with the small toad, and then how well the how well the training worked. You know, these were animals that um, historically had gone virtually extinct behind the front line, and then you had, you know, we had 50% of the population still surviving in high densities of cane toads. Goannas are known to well, anecdotally, they're known to be uh, intelligent. They're considered an intelligent lizard, uh, even though there's not really that much to back that up empirical evidence. Um, but this was kind of one of the studies that shows that, yes, they, they did indeed. And they certainly learn quickly, yeah. Yeah, fascinating. And especially the fact that you had um, 31 untrained uh, subjects, you know, all of them, uh, you know, the last one gone by day 183 and 50% of the trained animals still going um, after day 482. Uh, that's, uh, that's just that in itself is quite incredible. Yeah. Fantastic result. And, um, uh, I guess that, uh, that study is ongoing. Um, is, is there going to be, uh, more, uh, I, I guess you guys are out there pretty frequently, um, you know, fishing and dangling toads around at the moment. <laughs> well, that was just the field that that study was focused on trying to understand whether the animals could learn. So we really needed to get results and that's why we were working with individual animals, radio tracking them. Once we had that result, we could then build off that to say, okay, we know this species can learn uh, and this is a very important species ecologically. It's very important that we keep these animals in the landscape, both for ecological functionality, but because they're one of the most important species to Indigenous cultures across Northern Australia. Um, so there's many reasons why we should keep them there. Um, so once we knew that they could learn, we, we kind of ramped up the project. And uh, as you mentioned, um, I created the Cane Toad Coalition, which is uh, uh, multiple organisations that have come together to actually roll out conditioned taste aversion on a landscape scale. And the way that we do that is we've moved, you know, now that we've got the results from the field trials with various species, we actually just have moved to a deployment phase where we're deploying sausages and small toads ahead of the invasion and we're just monitoring populations before and after cane toads come through to make sure that, that it is actually working. Yeah, wow. So all that um, science is now being put into a landscape level push yeah. to try to protect different species with those different method methods, whether they're 
I guess, more scent-based. You can use sausages or more visual learners. Then you got to use the little the little juvenile toadlets. Interesting. Fascinating stuff. Um, and obviously, um, you know, a lot of these animals in those areas are very, very important to uh, the uh, indigenous cultures in the area, particularly goannas, which uh, does bring us um, around to the next paper um, that I wanted to talk to you about. Fascinating stuff that just came out from you guys this year. Um, uh, now, we're, uh, just uh, for our audience at home, moving on to the paper, uh, Ward Fear at All 29. 19 sharper eyes see shire lizards collaboration with indigenous peoples can alter the outcomes of conservation research that's in uh, conservation letters um we mentioned that uh the uh the uh, condition taste aversion study was uh performed by uh, pairs of uh, uh observers one scientist and one indigenous ranger cruising around on an atv dangling uh, <laughs> dangling toads in front of lizards um and something very very interesting um came out of that study as well um which uh to me is uh, absolutely fascinating um i guess a bit of background uh, again for our audience who don't know um the kimberley wa study area it's got tens of thousands of years of indigenous uh, traditional custodianship over the landscapes and, and ecosystems basically a lot of the um uh indigenous uh traditional owners manage the ancestral homelands by their cultural group traditions and there's associated indigenous ranger teams which form extensive land management networks uh and uh do work in conjunction with western science um which is this great um you know intermingling of uh western and traditional ecological knowledge in conservation research very very cool and um i've even had the opportunity when i uh, volunteered with the um, awc to work with some of the people on the indigenous land council and um their knowledge of uh local ecosystems and, and particularly animal behavior is just phenomenal. So do you want to take us uh, through this a little bit? You guys were searching through teams uh, for uh, Varanus Panoptus, the yellow spotted monitor with one scientist and one ranger. Um, was this originally just to help with finding animals? The project was conducted on the Umbulgari floodplain, which as I said earlier, is part of the, you know, is, is in Balangara country, the, the traditional owners of the East Kimberley. And the project was conducted collaboratively with the Balangara Rangers, who are the land management representatives of the Balangara people. So we did all aspects of the study together. We lived out there uh, at Umbulgari, which is a mission that was had been recently closed down. Um, but that's, this is their traditional homeland. So we worked together on all aspects of the study, from the catching to the uh, radio telemetry to scoring the, the the habits of the goannas, to measuring behaviour. Uh, and, yeah, as you said, we would go out and cruise every morning looking for goannas um, on an ATV, one Western scientist and one Indigenous ranger. Um, and so that's just how, how the project went. And then we got these, these really good results. The project was, you know, the, the research was successful uh, and it then led to the rollout of this landscape scale technique. But I've been working with traditional owners since 2013 and what they bring to a project, it's kind of hard to put your finger on. Right. And that's definitely been the case with, um, with, uh, with this latest paper. Yes. So working, working with traditional owners, you know that they're bringing something really important. And when you're out in the field with these people, their skills and their senses, um, apart from their knowledge of country, their skills and their senses are so, are so sharp and you really are benefiting from from that, it, the ecological project is benefiting from that. And I started thinking about whether there was any way that I could quantify the input that the rangers have had in a way, in an empirical way, um, to, to demonstrate, just to see, first of all, um, but then secondly, just to demonstrate if it was 
if there was, to demonstrate how good these um, relationships can be and how fruitful they can be. And it was really interesting. So when I went back through the data and started looking at who had spotted the goanna, which I had all this data about where this goanna had been spotted, who spotted it first and under what conditions was it spotted and blah, blah, blah. So when I went back and looked at that data, firstly what I found was that rangers were able to spot goannas that were further away, that were sitting, that were stationary, not moving, that were in shade, not bright light, uh, and that could be in um, thick vegetation, so partially covered. Scientists, the Western scientists, we tended to spot goannas that may be closer, that may be moving, um, that, and you know, that were in, it was in bright light and that was kind of in the open. So first of all, the rangers were able to spot, um, you know, was able to spot animals that were more difficult to see, which is cool and makes sense when you're actually out there with them. Um, but yeah, that's kind of a cool result. Right. But um, there's a, there's a secondary thing that we're kind of uh, a secondary outcome that we're kind of hinting at here, which was uh, super interesting. Um, obviously, these rangers are detecting lizards that are harder to spot, but um, also um, they might be a little bit uh, shyer, less bold. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so that was the first result. Um, throughout the project, because we had been taking behavioural measures from the animals and looking at all the, you know, the e ecological variables such as home range size, um, you know, diet and mating success and all that kind of stuff, we had a really good profile for each animal. And what we discovered was that there was a boldness or personality spectrum within the population that was consistent. And so, what that means is that. A boldness spectrum in the population means that some animals are consistently bold, some animals are consistently shy. Essentially, goannas have personalities. <laughs> I know that sounds weird, but it's true. I haven't spent too much time in the bush with goannas. So first of all, I guess another sign of, uh, I guess, greater intelligence um, in uh, the monitor lizards as well. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, at least kind of diversity within the populations. Um, I mean, animal behavior is a very large area of research, uh, and we're learning more and more about personality in animals and the consistencies. So what we found was that there were animals that were consistently bold and consistently shy. Um, when I looked at that in the context of the ranger court versus scientist court animals, as you probably would assume, animals that are further away and that are you know, in vegetation and everything might be hiding. And it turned out that the animals that rangers spotted tended to be shyer as well as you know, being harder to spot. That's kind of a correlation you might expect. But the really, really exciting result of that study that you're talking about was that because of some behavioural dimension to do, probably to do with shyness or boldness, the animals that the rangers spotted also learnt condition taste aversion better than the ones that the scientists spotted. They had an interaction with a small toad. They remember that when the large cane toads came through, they, they held onto that memory more strongly versus, say, the scientists going as that may have had an interaction with a small toad, they developed an aversion and they did, you know, reject the small toads in subsequent trials. And then when the cane toads came through, they either didn't remember that learning or they did for a while, but for not as long. And so they died sooner. Right. So the scientists are finding these uh, bold, foolhardy lizards that are Yeah, kind not, of gung-ho. Yeah, they're not learning to stop drinking the rum. Yeah, no, no, they're going back for more. They're <laughs> going back for more. <laughs> yeah, so... So, so that was, you know, a very interesting. Well, I mean, that the that whole chain of of kind of results is interesting. But what that actually meant, the real kicker to the story, is that the ranger spotted goannas were was actually the sample of animals that drove the successful, significant result of the study, and what led to the rollout of this whole 
uh, conservation technique that's now being applied ahead of the cane toad invasion front. Yeah, that's absolutely incredible that um, just by having the uh, the difference between the spotter um, be one of the critical differences to see which one of those groups benefits more from condition taste aversion training. Yeah, yeah. So it's the spotter differences, but I mean, these were just, this was just the aspects. This was a real you know this was a real doozy. This story, but this was just the stuff that I was able to quantify. There was, there's lots of you know things that. There's lots of benefits to this um, exchange between Western science and ecological, uh, traditional ecological knowledge um, that that we experiencing we experienced during this project that um, has led to good outcomes and has led to different arms of research and observations that we made that that have then you know expanded and yeah so it was great it was a very very uh, fruitful collaboration yeah amazing how uh, indigenous uh, I guess eyesight and spotting ability has uh, helped improve the success of the um, condition taste aversion program particularly I guess on that landscape level now that you've got all that information out and you're trying to roll it ro- roll out the different baits or the different toad dangles you want to be picking the uh, shire animals to get as much uh, efficiency and bang for your buck yeah definitely yeah fantastic um, and I, uh, I guess one of the questions is uh, you know, this is this is a fantastic result. First of all, for the Western science and traditional ecological knowledge collaboration front, but um, I guess there's going to be some implications there for future research as well, and uh, I guess for some prior <laughs> uh, surveys and studies using white people only, which might have now considered to have biased <laughs> counts of only bold animals. Um, I guess uh, you know. Uh, I guess future research uh, should, I guess, try to incorporate local spotters from indigenous hunting cultures. Hunting cultures, um, I guess, to improve coverage where possible. Is that uh, kind of the the take home message for you? Yeah, I think um, definitely. I mean, that phenomenon is called observer bias, and it's something that you should account for in ecological studies anyway, and and trappability of animals and things like that. But this was just an amazing example of of how this collaboration led to improved scientific outcomes. But in terms of the general engagement between traditional ecological knowledge and skills and Western science, I think there is scope and so much opportunity for so much more than um, than just looking at skills, you know, skills of hunters per se. There's so much, you know, the the knowledge of these people is deep, it is so deep, um, and it can be you know, it can complement Western science and Western science can complement it to uh, to produce really holistic studies and uh, and high-quality science. So, you know, all around the world, um, traditional ecological knowledge runs deep and has been um, used, sometimes exploited um, for commercial gains, uh, you know, by explorers and, and, and those kind of people. So I think now is a really important time as we move into a century where we're really going to be defined by our science and how we're going to come up with solutions for environmental problems. I think, um, you know, I, I see the potential for Indigenous traditional ecological knowledge and Western science to really get some good collaborations and, um, and yeah, good, good scientific outcomes to, to, to help with some of those solutions. Absolutely. And uh, I, as I understand it, they've been instrumental in uh, a lot of Australia's conservation programs so far, whether that's controlling other feral species such as feral cats or or even uh, on a lot of the landscape management scale kind of uh, processes. There's a lot of work that those uh, indigenous, uh, indigenous uh, uh, ranger groups do um, that really goes uh, a little bit unnoticed some of the time. Um, 
So, uh, you know, first of all, hats off to you. And uh, yeah, congrats again on the, that fantastic outcome for the, uh, the Sharper Eyes See Shire Lizards paper. Just, uh, yeah, it was a great read. And um, yeah, just yeah. a fantastic story as well. I really enjoyed it. Um, Good, thank you. Um, I guess just as far as, uh, I guess, uh, Indigenous traditional ecological knowledge, um, is there any other areas that you currently see uh, a, a place where that, that can be applied for conservation in the, I guess, in the north of Australia specifically? Apart from the skills uh, like, you know, trapping, hunting, tracking, um, which has an everyday use, what I would really like to see is more funding going towards Indigenous ranger programs so that there can be more people involved than just the rangers. There can be casual casuals, elders, some of those knowledge keepers. Um, and also what I'd really like to see is engagement from the start in the development of projects uh, with traditional owners and, you know, and Western scientists because often the model is that an academic gets funding for a certain project, uh, often that they can't really change that much because that's what they've got the funding for. And then they'll go to traditional owners and say, you know, we need to do this, are you open to doing this? We'll employ you um, with a fee-for-service arrangement. Uh, and there's, you know, the traditional owners don't really get a chance to have much ownership over the project or the direction of it. So what I'd really like to see is, is more of a collaborative approach, uh, maybe even supported by the funding councils, you know, by the Australian Research Council, where they provide some form of funding that's specifically to try and address some of the targets identified by the traditional owners that they themselves would like to see done. Um, in addition to the main, the main um, uh, thing, of, the main aim of the research that the academic is hoping to achieve. Well, um, I can definitely agree with that, and um, I would definitely be happy to see uh, plenty more Indigenous rangers out there. Um, having worked with them, um, their um, yeah, their knowledge uh, and um, skills were just invaluable um, when we were out there. So yeah, no, I can definitely agree with that one. Yeah, that's one thing that uh, that really got me thinking after after this study came out, uh, well, just after we discovered these results, was, you know, what has science missed? What have we missed by not including these different ways of knowing and different skill sets and different ways of investigation? We've, we must have missed so much. Absolutely, yeah. There's <laughs> the, the amount of uh, things that um, our eyes have missed over, over the years is uh, probably fairly large. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, look, um, we're pretty much going to have to wrap it up shortly, but um, I guess bringing it back to cane toads and their impacts on uh, native fauna, I guess, um, uh, you know, condition taste uh, aversion therapy might not be effective for some species or you need to use different methods. You need to use the sausage methods versus the, the live individual fishing methods. Um, is there any other options that you guys are currently thinking about and where do, uh, I guess, Indigenous ideas, Indigenous uh, traditional ecological ideas uh, come into the mix? We're not thinking about doing any other form of uh, the conditioned taste aversion therapy, uh, but what we are looking at is trying to understand and identify populations that may be less, more or less resilient to the invasion as it comes through. So, for example, on the edge of the cane toad range uh, in, the, in the desert kind of area, cane toads can't penetrate into the desert because they are still frogs and they do need water for part of the year. Those areas may not be as vulnerable to, you know, the declines that we see further north. And, you know, some... Uh, populations on the coast aren't, don't seem to be as vulnerable as populations more inland because they have different food subsidies through the year. Um, 
So we're not looking at changing how we do condition taste aversion, we're just looking at how we uh, can do the deployment in the most effective way. One thing that we are doing though is we're looking at ways that, uh, that we can augment this mitigation attempt uh, for, for species like goannas by working through sustainable hunting protocols uh, with some of the indigenous groups uh, through the Kimberley that who's, who want to protect this food source. So as even though condition taste aversion can buffer the impact, um, we want to try and maintain as many adults in the population uh, for at least the first few years uh, as, the, as, the, as the toad invasion moves through until they are able to continue reading and you know, their babies are, are um, growing up and having their own babies. So we're, we're developing plans together uh, based on the ecological knowledge that we have of those species so that then traditional owners can then manage those, their own stocks, their own populations of goannas um, for those first few years, which is so critical. Very, very cool. That's great stuff. Um, look, uh, Georgia, uh, I, I think we're pretty much going to have to wrap it up there for now. But look, we do uh, hope uh, and wish you the best in um, particularly protecting some of those more vulnerable populations and species up there as the uh, cane toad invasion comes through. And uh, hopefully more funding on the way for Indigenous land councils to uh, put more feet on the ground with you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Yanni. No worries. Um, guys, uh, that has been Dr. Georgia Ward-Fear. You can follow her on Twitter at G underscore Ward-Fear. And uh, it's canetoadcoalition.com, correct? Yes. No worries. Is there any, any anywhere else that uh, people should uh, be uh, going to check out um, your research or uh, the cane to the fight against cane toads? Yeah, no, the Cane Toad Coalition, it's, um, the website is about what we're doing up in the Kimberley. It's about the methodology. It's about the different groups that we work with and the different organisations. And it's also got information on there uh, for educational purposes about cane toad biology and, um, and a little bit of history. So it's, a, it's, quite a, it's quite a good site with lots of beautiful photos of where we work. Excellent. Check that out now, guys, and uh, follow Georgia on Twitter at G underscore Ward Fear. That's our show for today, guys. You can check us out at wildlifecakecocktails.com.au and follow us uh, on uh, Facebook and Instagram at Wildlife Cake Cocktails, on Twitter at under, uh, WCC underscore podcast, and you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, more, and all of the other streaming platforms that's our show for today guys thank you very much for joining us uh we will be back with plenty more wildlife cake and cocktails soon cheers all bye for now